Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. If you would be turning in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, which we completed working our way through chapter by chapter last week, but this week we just want to take a Sunday to do an overview of the book as a whole. So that's what we will be doing this morning. So we'll be looking at a few places in Ruth, but here in a few moments I will read for us from Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Um, As you're turning there, uh, we invite any children who may be participating in our children's class to make your way to the back room where there will be volunteers there to greet you and to instruct you in the Lord's Word there in that context this morning. But again, we are in the book of Ruth as a whole. But let me read for us from Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. And then I'll take a moment to pray and ask for the Lord's help together with you. Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for the privilege to be able to gather this morning as your people under the truth of your word. Father, we are thankful for the finished work of Christ that we just sang about that stands in our place for the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us our only hope this morning. And we're thankful for your spirit that you have sent to dwell in us, to awaken us to the truth of your word. And so, Father, we pray that you would be at work in us through your word this morning. Father, we know that you intend to do more than we could ever ask or think through your word this morning at work in individual hearts and individual lives. And so, Father, I pray this morning that through the good news of Christ, that you would bring hope to the hopeless, that you would bring joy to the downcast, that you would bring comfort to the afflicted. Father, I pray that you would allow me to speak only what is true of you, that uh, no one in this room would be led astray this morning, but that you would lead us into all truth through your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure all of you have heard the saying, don't miss the forest for the trees, right? That's a well-known saying. It means that you should be careful not to miss the big picture when you're staring at the details. And there's great value in remembering that as we study Scripture, right? It's, it's good. It is good to do detailed study of God's Word. In fact, I would commend it and recommend it. But We can get our nose so close to the page that we forget to step back and see the big themes of God's Word and what He's accomplishing through a book as a whole or through the Scriptures as a whole. 
And so that's why we wanted to take a Sunday to kind of just step back and remind ourselves of what we have been learning from Ruth as we've worked through chapter by chapter, but now just to step back and to take a few moments to see what themes have continued throughout the book and to see those themes and those truths and what they teach us about God, what they teach us about ourselves, and what they teach us about Christ. So that's what we want to do in Ruth this morning. We want to step back and look at these overarching themes. We want to see the, the forest that the trees of each chapter have, Lord willing, created as we've worked our way through. And I think one of the best ways to do this in Ruth, this doesn't necessarily work for every book of the Bible, but I think for Ruth it works well to simply take a look at each of the main characters in the story and track with what God teaches us through their story and through what occurs in their lives throughout the book of Ruth. Now, I want to uh, always give credit where credit is due. So doing it by characters is not my idea. I had the privilege of meeting with Jesse, who's not here this morning, Jesse Bustamante, who's a member of this church. And we talked through each chapter of Ruth. We've been able to do that throughout this sermon series. And, and he had this idea to that he thought would be helpful to use the characters as a framework to see these themes that God shows us in the book of Ruth. And so I thought that was a great idea and a really helpful way to do it. So if this is helpful, thank Jesse. If it's not, you can be angry with me because I messed it up, okay? So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to look at these main characters, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, and see the overarching themes of Ruth through their stories in the book of Ruth. So the, with each of those three characters, number one, we're going to begin with Naomi and see God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering. God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering. And then second, in Ruth's life, we're going to see that God welcomes the nations. God welcomes the nations. And then third, in Boaz's life, we will see that the righteous man is a joyful and gentle provider. So let's begin with Naomi and see God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering. So the first chapter of Ruth, if you want to turn there as a reference point, begins by summarizing a tragic situation for Naomi. She and her husband, along with their two sons, have fled Bethlehem because famine has come into the land. So they flee Bethlehem and they go to Moab to try and find food and sustenance. Now, I think we can read over that quickly and forget that that in and of itself is suffering. They were hungry, probably starving, and they were desperate as they fled away from Bethlehem to head toward Moab. They were so desperate, they were so hungry, they left behind everything they were familiar with. They left behind their possessions, their home, their culture, their country, their people to flee to Moab to try to just find enough food to sustain their family. So they were probably in pretty rough shape physically, hungry malnourished as they fled to Moab. So the suffering begins even there, even there in the famine and in the fleeing to Moab. But on top of that, once they arrive in Moab, there in chapter one of those first few verses of Ruth chapter one, we're told that Naomi's husband Elimelech dies. The patriarch and the provider for their family in a foreign land dies. And so instead of finding relief from their suffering, their suffering only increases when he passes away. And though that, again, in and of itself is tragic and heartbreaking and full of grief for Naomi and her sons, Malon and Kilion, the story gets worse. They take Moabite wives and then 10 years later, Malon and Kilion take Moabite wives and then 10 years later, they die there in the land of Moab. 
And so Naomi is left in a foreign land where she has been essentially exiled for 10 years without her husband and without her sons. And she is there with her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. This was a tragic situation filled with hardship and filled with suffering. Naomi is left without any of the family with whom she originally came to Moab from Bethlehem. And we have to remember in this time, in this culture, that widows were extremely vulnerable. Widows were faced with difficult financial situations because there were limitations on their rights to own property. There were limitations on their ability to earn an income or to care for their family. Often widows would lean on their family, on their children to provide for them. But even Naomi's children were taken from her. She was left destitute and her daughters-in-law were also left destitute because they also were widows in a terrible situation in this time and in this culture. It was an incredibly difficult situation on top of unimaginable grief of losing her husband and her two sons while being away from her home for 10 years. And you can feel Naomi's desperation in her words in chapter 1 when they hear that the Lord had visited his people in Bethlehem and he is now providing food. And so Naomi is ready to head back home and initially her daughters-in-law go with her. But if you look there in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, she turns to them and says to them, you need to stay here. Don't come with me because I can provide nothing for you. There is no hope for you in coming with me. And so in chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, this is what Naomi says to them. Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You see, the greatest imaginable solution that Naomi can think of in that moment is that if somehow God provided her husband that very day and she somehow was able to have children that very day, that would be the only hope for Ruth and Orpah because then they can marry brothers of Malon and Kilion and bring and, and then have and be a part of the inheritance of this family. But of course, that's an absurd hope. And so she essentially says, we're hopeless There is no hope for our situation. And then Naomi looks around at her circumstances and she begins to draw theological conclusions. And you heard her say even there in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1, she says, do not call me Naomi. So she has returned to Bethlehem at this point with her daughters-in-law, or sorry, with Ruth. And she comes to the townspeople in chapter 1, verse 20. And they recognize her and say, is this Naomi? But Naomi's name means pleasant. And so Naomi says to them in chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi was convinced by looking at her circumstances that God was against her. She looks at her circumstances and she draws theological conclusions from her suffering. And she says that God has dealt bitterly with me. He is against me. He is not for me. But here's what Naomi's story reminds us of by the time we get to the end of the book of Ruth. It reminds us that we shouldn't draw theological conclusions based on our circumstances. 
We should draw theological conclusions based on the truth of God's word. We're reminded that just because God allows suffering in our lives does not mean that he is against us. It does not mean that he is against us. We're reminded of truths, of New Testament truths like Romans 8.28, which says to us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even the suffering in our lives, God uses for our good and for his glory. Or there's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, which says, So we do not lose hearts. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is exactly what happens in Naomi's life. Even in chapter 1, we begin to see hints almost immediately that the Lord is not, in fact, against her. Even after she complains about God being against her, at the end of chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, the author of Ruth, the narrator of the story, reminds us that Naomi has not been emptied. The Lord has provided Ruth, a faithful daughter-in-law, for her. The Lord has provided food for them that now he has visited his people with food at the beginning of barley harvest. There are hints of hope even at the end of chapter one. And then in chapter two, he, as Ruth and Naomi have returned to the land of Bethlehem and Ruth is willing to go out into the fields to glean from the harvest just to provide some kind of sustenance for she and Naomi. And she goes out and chapter two tells us that she just happens to be She just happens to be in the field of Boaz, the very man who has the legal right to redeem their family and to restore them and to provide for them. And then even in chapter three, Naomi becomes impatient and she comes up with this unwise scheme to kind of force Boaz's hand. But even in the midst of that lack of wisdom and that impatient scheming, God is so kind and patient toward Ruth and towards specifically Naomi. And the Lord uses that unwise plan to bring about this relationship between Ruth and Boaz. And so when we come to chapter 4, we see Boaz is willing to step in and to redeem Ruth and to redeem the family of Naomi. And the author makes crystal clear in chapter 4, verse 14, that this child and her daughter-in-law Ruth were precious gifts of God to her. Just listen to chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. And this should be astonishing to us that that the story ends really being about Naomi's restoration, that the book is titled Ruth, but the book begins with Naomi's emptying, and it ends with Naomi being filled back up by God himself. So there in chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. This is talking about the child that God has given to them through the marriage of Boaz and Ruth. And verse 15 says, This child shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then listen to verse 16 and 17. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to who? To Naomi. This was Ruth's child. But theologically, the theme that's been developed in Ruth is to say, No, this is the child of Naomi. This is God's gift to her. This is God filling her back up. The the very Naomi who said, God is against me. And now it's become clear that he was always for her. 
He was always at work for her good and for the glory of his name. The author's point is clear. He wants to say to us that Naomi was wrong, that the Lord had not turned against her, that instead he was with her in the midst of her suffering at work in every moment to bring about this glorious moment, both in Naomi's life and in redemption history. And this is what I love about Naomi's story. In chapter 1, Naomi says, even if I was to hope against hope, right? The greatest imaginable hope I can think of is if God dropped a husband in my lap this very day and I became pregnant and was able to provide children for you, Ruth and Orpah, to marry, you would never wait long enough and you shouldn't wait long enough to marry those men, right? That's the greatest hope I can think of. But God says, I can do more than you can ask or think, Naomi. Right, it's what Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says to us. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. God is able to do more than we can ever ask or think, more than we can imagine. Naomi's greatest hope, the greatest, most wild, crazy thing she could think of, God could do above and beyond it. And what he did is bring that family back and provide a redeemer for them through Boaz, who would, at the end of the story, marry Ruth and provide a child so that the name of Elimelech, the family of Naomi, could carry on. And of course, in that moment, even at the end of chapter 4, when it's become clear to Naomi that God has done above and beyond what she could ever ask or think, she still, she still doesn't know the full story of what God has done because she doesn't know that she's holding in her hands the grandfather of King David, who would one day be the line of King Jesus. It is because of Naomi's suffering that has brought that to pass, that the promised seed carries on, that brings the Redeemer into the world. God is always at work in ways we can't see, even in the midst of our suffering. So Naomi's story reminds us that we should not draw theological conclusions from our circumstances. Instead, we must look to the truth of God's word. We must be reminded that in Jesus Christ, that through Jesus Christ, that God is eternally for us, for all who trust in Jesus Christ. We are his adopted children. We belong to him. He is our father. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. He is with us to the end of the ages is what Jesus says to us in Matthew chapter 28. And that truth does not change when suffering enters our lives. Instead, God says to us that he uses that suffering for our good, for his glory, and he is there every moment present with us, even in the midst of our suffering, as 2 Corinthians reminded us, producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's what he did in Naomi's life, and it's what he says he will do in our lives because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. So we see in Naomi's life, and we see in the book of Ruth as a whole, that God is faithful even in the midst of suffering. That suffering does not mean that God is against us. And then in Ruth's life, we see that God welcomes in the nations. That God welcomes the nations. So let's, let's track with Ruth. In the first chapter, near the very beginning of chapter 1, we're introduced to Ruth for the first time. Malon, one of the sons of Naomi, marries this Moabite woman, Ruth. Now, what becomes clear throughout the book of Ruth is the author does not want you to forget that Ruth is a Moabite, right? Five times in four chapters, the author of Ruth calls Ruth, Ruth the Moabite. 
He doesn't drop the title. He doesn't say, well, it's important in chapter 1 for you to know it, but it becomes less important as we go through Ruth. No, five different times all the way through chapter 4, even at the end of chapter 4, she's referred to as Ruth the Moabite. Now, why is that? Why does he continually call her Ruth the Moabite? Why is that significant? Well, we need to remind ourselves a little bit about who these Moabites were. Why? What's the big deal about Ruth being a Moabite? Well, you see, the the Moabites were an idolatrous pagan nation who neighbored Israel. They worshipped false gods, their god Chemosh. They worshipped, they were an idolatrous pagan people. And in fact, they were often adversaries of Israel. In fact, so much so that the law says in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, listen to what it says about the Moabite people. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Those are pretty harsh words. The Moabites as a whole were evil, wicked, pagan people. And here is Ruth, a Moabite. In other words, She's not really in a good position when it comes to relating to the people of God. And that's why her words are so astonishing in Ruth chapter 1, when she commits herself to Naomi. When Naomi is pleading with Ruth and Orpah to return to Moab, she says, go back to your people, go back to the gods of Moab, go back and find rest in in a Moabite husband's home, find a husband among your people, do not come with me. But in chapter 1 of Ruth, verses 16 and 17, this is what Ruth says to Naomi. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth is saying, I've committed to your God and your people and you, Naomi, and there is nothing that's going to keep that from happening. I'm even going to go back to your people. Your God's going to be my God. And when you die, I'm staying put and they're going to put me in the ground where they put you in the ground. I'm committed to you. This is Ruth turning her back on the gods of Moab. It's her turning her back on Chemosh. And she is saying, that is not my God. Yahweh is my God. His people will be my people. I am committed to becoming part of your people and to worshiping your God. And yet, even though she says these dramatic and awe-inspiring words of conversion there in chapter 1, yet the author continues to call her Ruth the Moabite. Why won't he drop that title for her in chapter 4? Well, I think one of the reasons why is because God wants to continually remind us that he is ready to welcome anyone who comes to him in faith from any nation and any peoples, even the Moabites. Ruth the Moabite makes Yahweh her God. She turns and repents of her worship of Chemosh and turns to worship the one true God 
the God of Israel, Yahweh himself. You see, this has always been God's purpose. Even when he set apart Israel, even when he came to Abraham and told Abraham that he was going to create a nation from his offspring, he said to him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God always had a plan for the nations. It's a demonstration. Ruth's life is a demonstration of what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. He says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, all the offspring of Abraham, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. You see, when the Apostle Paul is writing Romans and when he pens these kinds of words, all he's doing is looking back at the same Old Testament you and I are looking at. He's not creating this out of thin air. He's looking at who God is. And what he sees in the pages of the Old Testament is stories like this from Ruth. He sees that God has always been about gathering in the nations, which is why we have in Matthew chapter 28, at the end of the gospel, according to Matthew, Jesus telling us to go and make disciples of who? Of all nations, of all nations peoples. It's why when we come to the end of the Bible in Revelation and we have this heavenly scene of the heavenly throne room in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says, and after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. God has always been about gathering in the nations to himself from the beginning to the end. And Ruth is a primary example of God doing that in this woman's life. Ruth, the Moabite, became a child of the living God, of Yahweh. And not only that, what's even more astonishing about Ruth not only is she an example of God welcoming the nations who come to him in faith, but then by the time all is said and done, Ruth the Moabite is held up as an example of a righteous woman. And not informally, but in a very formal and intentional way, this Moabite woman, Ruth the Moabite, stands as an eternal example in God's word of what it looks like to be a righteous, godly woman. Now, why do I say that? Because it seems that Ruth is the specific example given to us of the excellent wife that we are told about in Proverbs chapter 31. And I don't mean that in a kind of a loose, vague kind of way. I mean that in a very intentional way. God wants us to see Ruth as the Proverbs 31 woman. Now, why do I say that? Well, there's a few different reasons why that connection is clear in God's word. First of all, the description of the woman in Proverbs 31. So Proverbs 31, verse 23, says that her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Well, what do we read about Boaz, her husband, in Ruth chapter 4? He sits in the gate among the ten elders of the land. And then the conclusion of Proverbs 31, the last verse of Proverbs 31, verse 31, says that this woman, this excellent wife, that this woman will be praised in the city gates. Well, guess what happens at the end of Ruth chapter 4? She's praised in the city gates. There's an intentional connection between this description of Proverbs 31 
and, and Ruth as a person. She is a dedicated hard worker. Ruth makes that clear over and over again. Chapter 1, chapter 2 says that she worked in the fields continually until the end of barley harvest. Every day she's out there all day gathering the grain, gathering the barley to take care of she and Naomi. She's an industrious, hardworking woman. And as if those examples are not enough to prove to you that Ruth is the example of the Proverbs 31 woman, we also have the fact that in the original language Bible, so in the Hebrew Bible, the order of the books are slightly different than the order of the books in the English Bible. So if you were able to read Hebrew and you were to read through the Old Testament, you would read the Old Testament in a different order than the order of the English Old Testament. Now, why do I point that out? Because in the Hebrew Old Testament, guess what book follows Proverbs 31? It's Ruth. So if you're reading through in the original language, you read through Proverbs 31 and this description of this excellent wife, this righteous woman, and you finish, the very next page you flip to is Ruth. Now, why do I make such a big deal of this? Because she's Ruth the Moabite. God didn't just welcome her in. He made her an example to be followed. You see, in God's kingdom, there are no second-class citizens. It doesn't matter what nation you come from. It doesn't matter what peoples you come from. You are God's child. We are all on equal footing before the throne of King Jesus. And so we're worshiping him for all eternity. Even Americans make it to the throne, right? Even we do, along with every other nation and peoples on this planet. God has called a people to himself whether it's a Moabite woman, an Israeli woman, or an American, we can all stand on equal footing before the throne of King Jesus. He is calling the nations to himself, and he welcomes all who come to him in faith. So in Naomi's life, we see God's faithfulness on display, even through her suffering. In Ruth's life, we see that God has always been about calling the nations to himself. And then in the life of Boaz, we see that the righteous man is a joyful and gentle provider. We first meet Boaz in chapter 2 of Ruth. You see there chapter 2, verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The first thing, the very first thing that we're told about Boaz is that he is a worthy man. And I would argue that the rest of chapters 2, 3, and 4 are written to prove to us that this is true. Everything that Boaz does proves that he is a worthy, righteous man of God. Every moment Boaz makes the righteous, obedient decision without fail. He follows the letter of the law. We even see it here in chapter 2. He is caring for Ruth the Moabite. She comes into his field to glean from the edges of the fields, to pick up the leftovers is what that means, to pick up the leftovers that are left behind and scattered in the field that the harvesters are leaving behind. And just listen to what the law says, both in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 and 22 says this, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. And here is Ruth. She's a sojourner. She is Ruth the Moabite. She is from a foreign land. And not only that, she's a widow. And Boaz knows this. And it's clear that he knows God's law. So he refuses to treat her poorly, to mistreat her. And not only that, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19 says this. 
When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. God's law told the people of Israel to leave behind provisions in the field for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And here's Ruth, the sojourning widow in the field of Boaz. And he is there obeying God's law, providing for her. But also what I love about Ruth, the book of Ruth, is that the author presents Boaz to us, not as this stiff, curmudgeon righteous, law-keeping man. No, he's presented as a joyful, generous, kind, gentle, law-keeping man. I mean, the first words out of Boaz's mouth as he arrives in the field and Ruth is there gleaning along the edges and he arrives and he's talking to his servants. And he, he shows up, you see there in verse, uh, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 4, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Right? You have this picture of just a happy man. He's joyful. He's not coming into the field kind of dragging in, tired and pitiful and complaining about having to work another day. No, he's stepping in, right? He's full of joy. The Lord bless you, right? The Lord keep you. There's, there's joy even in that brief conversation. This is the kind of man Boaz is. And he doesn't just avoid mistreating Ruth, right? God's law says don't mistreat the widow. He doesn't just not mistreat her. No, he goes above and beyond. He doesn't just leave the leftovers in the field. He says, no, you intentionally, servants, I want you to intentionally take provisions out of the sheaves and leave them laying there so that Ruth can gather them. Not only that, I want you to protect her. You don't dare lay a hand on this woman. Do not touch her, Boaz tells the servants. And she has the right to drink from the same water you do. She is to be provided for. And not only that, he invites her to come and sit down at table with him and his servants and share a meal together. Boaz continually goes over and above what he is called to do. And Ruth recognizes this. She recognizes her position. And you see it in chapter 2, verse 10. She says, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Again, just a reminder, Ruth is a Moabite. Perhaps what she doesn't realize is that it is because she is a foreigner, because she is a sojourner that Boaz cares for her. Boaz is simply exhibiting the heart of God. He's exhibiting the heart of God who cares for the sojourner, who cares for the destitute, who cares for the outcast. This is who God is. And Boaz, being the righteous man that he is, who has been shaped by meditating on and delighting in God's law, is simply exhibiting the heart of God toward the sojourner, toward the outcast, toward the foreign Moabite woman. And then as we come to chapter 3, again, we see Boaz as this joyful man, right? He's there. He's there at the threshing floor. He enjoys a meal with his servants. It says in chapter 3, verse 7, that his heart was merry as he goes to lay down. He's just, he's just a happy, joyful man. And he goes to lay down for the night. And uh, he didn't begrudge the law. He's full of joy and happiness. He delights in the law. And, and later in chapter 3, of course, we know about the situation where Ruth comes in the middle of the night on the unwise, it seems, advice of Naomi and puts Boaz in what could have been a very compromising situation. And Boaz could have taken advantage of this, right? He's the wealthy man of power. And here in the middle of the night in his room, 
is an outcast foreign woman who is desperate and needy. You hear about power dynamics? That's power dynamics right there. He could have taken advantage of her. He could have covered it up. No one would have believed Ruth over Boaz. But what does Boaz do? He does the righteous thing. And he simply gently speaks to her. And he says, I'll care for you, Ruth. I'll redeem you. In fact, he, in fact, he says, I'm honored that you would even consider marrying me. <laughs> the humility of Boaz on display. But he reminds her, again, Boaz, the righteous man who follows the letter of the law, says, I do want to let you know, Ruth, there is a redeemer who is a closer relative than I am. So according to God's law, he has first rights to redeem your land, to redeem your family, and then therefore to marry you. So we first must offer it to him. But if he refuses to redeem it, Ruth, I will redeem you. I will marry you. And so we come to chapter 4. And we learn that this other closer relative, this other redeemer refuses to redeem them. He simply can't spare the expense it would require without bringing harm to his future inheritance. So at great cost, Boaz steps in and he redeems Ruth and he marries her. And never once, never once do we get a sense that Boaz does any of these things, any of these righteous acts, any of these acts of going above and beyond what the law caused him to do. Never once do we get a sense that Boaz does anything because he feels like he has to. It's always because he wants to. It fills Boaz with joy to be able to care for Ruth and Naomi to be able to continually give above and beyond for them. Even when Ruth came to him in the middle of the night and he so gently cares for her, he will not let her leave without piling more grain into her coat so she can take it home to Naomi. And he always does it with gentleness and with joy. Now, why do I point this out? Because I think all of us, myself included, we need to get rid of the picture that we often carry in our minds of the righteous law-keeping man being some kind of stoic, hardened, stiff man who's just kind of a curmudgeon. That's not what a righteous man looks like in God's word. That's not who Boaz was. No, a truly righteous man will be joyful. He will be gentle. A truly righteous woman will be joyful, will be gentle, will be generous. Righteous men and women mirror the heart of God the heart of God that's always directed toward the humble, the destitute, the desperate, the outcast, the sojourner. You see, Boaz's heart was drawn to Ruth because that's the kind of person God is drawn to. She was a worthy woman. And Boaz says that's the reason he tells her in chapter 3. That's the reason he wants to marry her. And so you see, we have this character of God on display through Boaz. He is mirroring and exhibiting God-likeness in his person. Therefore, it should not surprise us that when the most righteous, holy of holy men comes to earth, the divine, glorious Son of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, when he shows up, he is a joyful, gentle, generous man. If you read the New Testament, you never get the sense that Jesus is a hardened curmudgeon of a man. It's not who he is. He is, he is serious but he's joyful, he's gentle, he's generous. He spends time with the outcast that nobody else wants to be around. He goes to dinner party at the homes of sinners and because of that, he's criticized. How dare you spend time with those people? But he goes anyway. He gets on his hands and knees and he washes the filthy, stinking feet of his disciples. He speaks with both grace and truth as he patiently 
teaches people who desperately need to hear the truth. Now, I want to be clear. That's not to say that Jesus is never firm, that he never speaks a harsh word. There are moments, right, when Jesus has hard things to say to people, when he says harsh things to people, when he clears out the temple, right, when he cleanses the temple of the money changers. But those moments are reserved for the self-righteous, for the arrogant, for the prideful, but for the broken, for the destitute, for the desperate, for those who know that they're sick, for those who know they need a redeemer. Jesus is the most joyful, gentle, generous man you can imagine. He heals the sick. He speaks kindly and gently to those in need of compassion and care. Matthew chapter 12, verse 20 tells us that a bruised reed he will not break. Jesus is a kind and generous Savior. And we see that even in the life of Boaz, who mirrors forth the character of God. But all of that leads me to a final character that's not in the outline, the final character that I haven't mentioned yet, because I just want to conclude with the final character in the book of Ruth. And in fact, he is the main character, and that is Yahweh, God himself, who brings it all to pass. Yahweh, God, is the faithful promise keeper. As we read through Ruth, every situation, every circumstance, every conversation, God is in control, directing the flow of history. God is sovereign over weather patterns. God is sovereign over crops. God is the one who brought the famine to Bethlehem. He brought it intentionally. And through that, he was accomplishing a thousand things. But one of the things he was accomplishing is sending Elimelech and his wife to Moab. God brought the famine. Therefore, they had to flee to Moab. Did that cause suffering? Yes, absolutely. But God was sovereign over it because they're in the land of Moab. There in the land of Moab, Naomi's sons took Moabite wives. There, because they fled to Moab, Ruth learned about this glorious reality of the one true God of Yahweh himself, the God of the people of Israel. If there had not been a famine, Ruth would have died a Moabite woman who had never placed her faith in the God of Israel. But it is through his sovereignty, even over famines, that they flee to Moab that Ruth hears the good news of this God of Israel and she repents of her worship of Chemosh and she makes the God of Israel her God. And as she returns with Naomi, as she returns to the fields of Bethlehem, she goes out to glean. And what does Ruth chapter 2 say to us? That she just happens to be in the field of Boaz. No, she was sovereignly directed into the field of Boaz. That is the author's way of telling us that God is in control that Boaz, this man who would, could be their redeemer, this man who is worthy, she just happens to be in his field at the right time, on the right day, in the right moment. And as we saw, it is God's work to prepare Boaz, this man after God's own heart, who always makes the righteous decision. He places Ruth into his path, this kind and gentle, righteous man who always does what's right in the book of Ruth. I'm not saying Boaz was without sin, but in the book of Ruth, all we know is Boaz always does the righteous thing. And God prepared this man for this moment, for Ruth and for Naomi. He is the one directing all that happens until we come even to chapter four. And it says that even the man that Boaz needed to talk to, who could have been the closer, nearer relative at the beginning of chapter four, it says that he just, behold, there he is. He just happens by the exact right person Boaz needs to talk to at the exact right time at the city gate is there. 
And it, it, we feel this moment of tension, right? What's going to happen in these legal proceedings? What if this guy lays claim to the family of Naomi and marries Ruth? What if that's what happens? But God's even sovereign over legal proceedings. He's sovereign over negotiations. He's sovereign over that other redeemer and keeping him from having the resources that he would have needed to redeem Ruth. And so he refuses to redeem her. And God places it in the hands of Boaz to redeem them and to marry Ruth. And then when they get married, chapter 4 says to us, as we read earlier, chapter 4, verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Ruth had not been able to have children in the land of Moab when she was married to Malon, but here God opens her womb. It is God's doing. He is the one who is at work in the midst of this entire narrative, this entire story, because he is the faithful, promise-keeping God. You see, in Genesis 3.15, we talk about this often, but just to mention it again, in Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit and they rebel against God, and God is bringing his curses on Adam and Eve, on humanity. He's bringing his curses to the serpent. But even in the midst of that, he says to Eve that she will bear offspring. And from that seed, there will come a man who will one day crush the head of Satan. And we track with that seed from Eve to Seth to Abraham, eventually to Judah, to Perez, to Boaz, to David, to Jesus. But here's where I want to remind you that God rarely takes the path of least resistance, right? God moved weather patterns and caused famines to come into the land of Bethlehem just to accomplish his purposes, to get all the right people in the right places at the right time. And God's infinite wisdom extends beyond the reaches of our comprehension. God wanted a widowed, sojourning, converted Moabite woman to marry a law-keeping, righteous, joyful Jewish man to carry on the promised seed that would one day crush the head of Satan. This is how God operates in his sovereignty because he wants to get the glory. He wants to display that he is the one in control at all times so that we fall on our face so that we worship him. And we see that even in the redemption that we have through Jesus Christ when he sends the divine, eternal, uncreated Son of God, God of very God, to take on human flesh and become one of us, to become like us in every way so that he can die in our place. And he willingly lays down his life on the cross and takes God's wrath, God's wrath in our place so that we could have eternal joy and satisfaction undeserved in the presence of God forevermore. And even on the cross, with his last breaths, he cries out and quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's in that very Psalm chapter 21, oh, sorry, Psalm chapter 22, that we later read in verses 26 through 28. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. 
There on the cross, as Jesus quoted Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think there is little question that he had in mind all of Psalm chapter 22 as he invites the nations to come and worship at his feet. This is our Redeemer. This is the God who welcomes in the nations and is a gentle and kind Savior as he lays down his life on the cross in our place. Let's pray together now as we transition to our time of observing the Lord's table together. Father, we are thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. We're so thankful for the testimony of the book of Ruth and how it reminds us of your character and your nature, that you are a promise-keeping God and how you work even in the midst of our suffering. You are sovereign over our suffering. You are working for our good and for your glory. Father, we are so thankful that you welcome in the nations. It is because of that that we are able to come before Jesus, that we are able to come to him in faith and trust in his finished work on the cross. Father, we are thankful that you're sovereign, that you care for us. And so, Father, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy, that we would follow you with great delight in your law, with great delight in the truth of your word, and that we would exhibit your character to the watching world. Father, we are so thankful for the finished work of Christ that stands in our place. And even now, as we as we participate in the Lord's table and we eat of the broken bread, symbolizing your uh, Jesus, your broken body, and drink of the juice, symbolizing Jesus, your spilled blood. I pray that it would be a moment of worship as we proclaim your death, Jesus, until you come. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.